Chapter 11, An Introduction to Dissident Heroes. Friday, May the 17th, 1527, Rottenburg in Germany. The judges returned with a verdict of guilty and a sentence of horrifying and unmitigated savagery. Michael Zattler shall be committed to the executioner, who shall convey him to the square and first cut out his tongue. Then he shall forge him fast to a wagon, and thereon with glowing iron tongs, twice tear pieces from his body, then on the way to the site of execution, five times more in the same manner, and then burn his body to powder as an arch-heretic. There was a moment of emotion. The prisoner's wife turned to her husband, and drawing him to her, embraced him in the sight of the entire crowd. It moved at least one member of the audience. Michael Zattler was remanded in custody for a further three days. A friend said in a letter, What fear, what conflict and struggle flesh and spirit must have undergone cannot be imagined. There's a spot on the Tübingen Road, about a mile out of Rottenburg, where men, following such dim light as they had, in the name of perverted justice, removed from their midst one more worthy than themselves. The cutting out of the tongue was bungled, allowing Michael to pray for his persecutors. As he was lashed to the ladder, he spoke with concern to Haltmeier, urging him to have no part in the deed, lest he also be condemned. The mayor answered defiantly that Zattler should concern himself only with God. His last public words, uttered with difficulty, were a prayer for God's help to testify to the truth. The ladder was thrown onto the fire. As the fire burned through the ropes that bound his hands, he raised two fingers of his hand in a victory sign, a prearranged signal to his friends that he had been steadfast. He was thirty-seven. Eight days later, his wife was thrown into the river Neckar and drowned. That was a quotation from Alan Eyre's book, The Protesters, written in 1975. Zattler was convicted for his views on non-involvement in war. John Biddle, who lived from 1615 to 1662, was a distinguished British academic, graduate of Oxford, and at the age of 26 elected headmaster of Crypt Grammar School in Gloucester, England. Since he was asked to teach scripture, he began a painstaking examination of the Bible. He was supposed to teach his students according to the Catechism of the Church of England, but soon found this impossible. His relentless search for truth in scripture produced in him an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. He knew the whole of the New Testament by heart in English and in Greek. He admitted that he had some difficulty in remembering the Greek text after Revelation chapter 4. He spoke against the spurious Trinitarian verse in 1 John 5 verse 7 and explained the oneness of Jesus and the Father as, and I quote, an union in consent and agreement, but never an union in essence. He later debated with Bishop Usher of Usher's chronology fame and outwitted him, asserting that the Father is the only true God. 
He produced a pamphlet entitled 12 Arguments Against the Deity of the Holy Spirit. Someone gave a copy to the magistrates and he was committed to jail. In 1646, Biddle was summoned to London and confined in the gatehouse at Westminster while his trial dragged on. He remained in prison for five years, mostly for his questioning of the Trinity. He spoke of the Church Fathers as those who, and I quote, did in outward profession so put on Christ as that in heart they did not put off Plato. He alluded to Matthew 19 verse 4, where he maintained that Jesus, in referring to, quote, him that made them in the beginning, attributed the creation to a being other than himself. Deserted by his friends, he spent most of the rest of his life in prison. The British Houses of Parliament passed the following law. Anyone who shall by preaching, printing, or writing controvert the deity of the Son or the equality of Christ with the Father shall suffer the pains of death as in the case of felony without benefit of clergy. Any who shall maintain that man hath by nature free will to turn to God, that the soul dieth after the body is dead, that baptizing of infants is void, and that such persons ought to be baptized again, that the use of arms is unlawful, that the churches of England are no more churches nor their ministers and ordinances, true ministers and ordinances shall be imprisoned. Biddle had single-handedly recovered central truths of the Bible. He claimed that he had read none of the Unitarian Polish Brethren's literature before coming to his own conclusions. On February the 10th, 1652, Biddle was released. He remained in London addressing small groups on Sundays, but he was never officially ordained. He produced a large number of tracts on different biblical topics, but principally his A Two-Fold Catechism, consisting almost entirely of scripture verses. In his preface, he spoke of, quote, all catechisms generally being so stuffed with supposals and traditions of men that the least part of them is derived from the word of God. Not one quotation amongst many being a wit to the purpose, that is, having any point at all. That was from Biddle's A Twofold Catechism, which can be read on the internet. From his catechism, he banned all phrases like, quote, eternal generation of the Son, God dying, God made man, mother of God. The catechism was ordered to be burned, and he was again imprisoned along with his publisher, Richard Moore. Two days later, some brethren from Poland arrived in London with tracts translated into English by Biddle and printed by Moore. Biddle was charged with blasphemy and heresy. He escaped a capital sentence, but remained in confinement. Some influential persons were bold enough to ask Parliament, and I quote, whether Biddle does not, in fact, 
profess faith in God by Jesus Christ? Is he not like Apollos, mighty in the scriptures? Is his crime that he believes the scriptures according to their most obvious nearest signification and not according to the remote and mystical interpretations? A typical argument of Biddle is this, I quote, he that saith Christ died, saith that Christ was not God, for God could not die. But every Christian saith that Christ died, therefore every Christian saith that Christ was not God. Biddle's last days were spent writing on the personal reign or kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ on the earth. In 1658, he was released once more. He maintained a steady contact with the Polish brethren. An observer remarked that, and I quote, there is little or nothing blameworthy in him except his opinions. Government agents pursued Biddle frequently, but many were forced to admire his, quote, strict exemplary life, full of modesty, sobriety, and forbearance, no ways contentious, altogether taken up with the great things of God revealed in the scriptures. On June the 1st, 1662, he was holding a Bible study in his own home. An armed party entered the room and carried him off and imprisoned him before a certain Judge Brown. Five weeks later, sick with jail fever, he died, confident of his hope in the resurrection at the second coming. He had been unable to pay the hundred pounds demanded as a fine. He is the father of British Unitarianism. I began with these brief sketches from the lives and deaths of two of the most interesting examples of dissidents to show the extraordinary antagonism which awaits any who question Orthodox's view of the Godhead, or in the case of Zattler, other traditional doctrines. Zattler was a staunch advocate of Christians not being involved in war, a point of view recently espoused by a leading evangelical scholar in the United States, namely Gregory A. Boyd, in his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation how the quest for political power is destroying the church, written in 2005. To count God as one rather than three in one is a risky business. The denial of popular Trinitarian notions, though less dangerous in our day, is an invitation to be labeled cult and to be included in the late Walter Martin's documentation of the ever-growing kingdom of the cults. It's essential for a believer in the Shema of Israel and in Jesus' affirmation of that creed to be well informed about the doctrine of the one God. He must be expert in that teaching if he's ever to convince anyone of its truth, especially those who have been fully exposed to so-called orthodox views of God. The Mennonites have been quick to see that converts should be given a detailed course of instruction in the history of their movement. This sense of heritage builds confidence and stability. 
there's a highly significant vociferous if often tragic heritage in the field of belief in one god the father which ought to make us deeply grateful for those who lived in times of much less religious freedom we should be conscious of their tremendous devotion to truth often to the point of martyrdom for this reason the book the radical reformation by george hunston williams should be central in the libraries of those espousing a so-called biblical unitarian point of view this book inspires confidence and humility as it recalls a galaxy of dedicated christians those who struggled against terrible odds to preach a doctrine of god which has a firm basis in scripture but which is regarded as heresy by some of the mainstream this book jesus was not a trinitarian represents a socinian view of the son of god named after faustus socinus who lived from 1539 to 1604. I note that our Christological view does not, however, include an adherence to a so-called Socinian view of the atonement. Many biblical Unitarians now insist with evangelicals on the substitutionary death of Jesus for the sins of the world. Modern Socinians in Christology include the Church of God Abrahamic Faith, Christadelphians, and some Church of God Seventh-day members and Advent Christians. Many modern scholars of different nationalities have proposed the views we are espousing without labeling them Socinian. A brief survey of Unitarian history reveals the following as leaders in the movement which understands the Son of God as not literally pre-existent but so-called ideally or notionally pre-existent in the councils of god the other principal form of non-trinitarianism is represented by the so-called arian position named after bishop arius who lived from 250 to 336. This view sees Jesus as pre-existent, but created. There was a time when the Son was not, were the words of Arius. I note that little advertised by Trinitarians is the fact that Tertullian, supposedly a stalwart supporter of orthodoxy, also stated that there was a time when the Son did not exist. You'll find that in his work Against Hermogenes, chapter 3. The Trinity was clearly not yet fully developed in its Nicene form when Tertullian spoke those words. Michael Servetus, who lived from 1511 to 1553, is perhaps the most celebrated anti-Trinitarian. A native of Spain, an Anabaptist, that's to say a rebaptizer and a soul sleeper as to say the teaching that man is unconscious in death until the resurrection and this view is known as conditional immortality michael servetus's doctrines were a constant red flag to the bull 
in this case, John Calvin, who energetically tried to silence millenarians, soul sleepers, and anti-Trinitarians. A little-known fact is that Luther preached a sermon in 1524 upholding the sleep of the dead. Servetus believed that the Son of God was the biological product of God and Mary. There was no literally pre-existing Son. Jesus' divinity consisted in the nature he received from God at conception. Forgotten truth was rediscovered in the Reformation period by stages. First Servetus, later the Polish and Italian brethren led by Faustus Socinus, who arrived at a purely Unitarian view, not, of course, capital U Unitarian, in other words, not the contemporary sense of the word often meaning Unitarian Universalists. However, the Spaniard Servetus' deviation from orthodoxy on the Godhead was enough to cause his martyrdom at the hands of John Calvin. His effigy was burned before he succumbed to the same fate in 1553. The theology which resulted in death for Servetus is summarized by Earl Morse Wilbur. What was the teaching of Servetus' books that they should have so shocked the reformers? Taking the teaching of the Bible as absolute and final authority, Servetus held that the nature of God cannot be divided, as by a doctrine of one being in three persons, inasmuch as no such doctrine is taught in the Bible, to which indeed the very term Trinity and the term essence and substance and the like words as used in the creeds are foreign, being mere inventions of men. The earlier fathers of the church also knew nothing of them, and they were simply foisted upon the church by the Greeks who cared more to make men philosophers than to have them be true Christians. Equally unscriptural is the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. Servetus pours unmeasured scorn and satire on these doctrines, calling them illogical, unreasonable, contradictory, and imaginary and he ridicules the received doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of one God in three persons, he says, cannot be proved, nor even really imagined, and it raises questions which cannot be answered and leads to countless heresies. Those who believe in it are fools and blind. They become, in effect, atheists, since they are left with no real God at all while the doctrine of the Trinity really involves a quaternity of four divine beings. It is the insuperable obstacle to the conversion of Jews and Mohammedans to Christianity, and such blasphemous teachings ought to be utterly uprooted from men's minds. In place of these artificial doctrines of the creeds, Servetus draws from the Bible the following simple doctrines and quotes many texts to prove them. 
Firstly, the man Jesus, of whom the Gospels tell, is the Christ anointed by God. Secondly, this man Jesus, the Christ, is proved by his miraculous powers and by the statements of Scripture to be literally the human Son of God because he was miraculously begotten by God. Thirdly, this man is also, quote, God, so to speak, since he is filled with the divinity which God has granted him. Hence he is divine, not by nature, as the creeds teach, but solely by God's gift. God himself is incomprehensible, and we can know him only through Christ, who is thus all in all to us. The Holy Spirit is a power of God sent in the form of an angel or spirit to make us holy. And the only kind of trinity in which we may rightly believe is this, that God reveals himself to man under three different aspects, dispositiones, for the same divinity which is manifested in the Father is also shared with his Son Jesus and with the Spirit which dwells in us, making our bodies, as St. Paul says, quote, the temple of God. End of quotation from Our Unitarian Heritage, an introduction to the history of the Unitarian movement, written in 1943. I note that Servetus' most important work, The Restoration of Christianity, is now available in an English translation by Christopher Hoffman and Marian Hiller, published in 2007. Anti-Trinitarianism found its fullest expression not in Spain, but in Polish Socinianism. A noted leader was Gregory Paulus, and Hungarian Unitarianism also. Many of the leaders of these movements were Italians, notably the Sozzini family, Faustus, and his uncle Lelius, from whom the label Socinian came. Earlier and less known pioneers who had set the scene for radical questioning of orthodoxy were Lorenzo Valla, an Italian philologist who in the 1400s raised questions about the Trinity, and a priest and Platonist, Marsilio Ficino, who died in 1499, who suggested that the Logos of John 1 verse 1 should be rendered not word, but sermo, from which our word sermon is derived. He thus began a whole trend of thought which would equate the word, with lowercase w, with the prophetic voice of God in the Old Testament, not with an eternal so-called second person of a trinity. He began thus to undermine the whole concept of the Logos as equal to a pre-existing son and consubstantial with the Father. Where the Church Fathers had spoken of the Word as an eternal Son, the anti-Trinitarians 
of the Radical Reformation, following Ficino, spoke of Christ as wholly human, as the fullest and final form of the prophetic voices which had preceded him. And compare with that Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Erasmus was also part of the anti-Trinitarian camp and wanted to have the spurious text of 1 John 5 verse 7 removed. In England, we can single out, in addition to John Biddle, mentioned earlier, a surgeon, Dr. George Van Paris, a Fleming by birth, burned at Smithfield in London on April the 25th, 1557, because, and I quote, he believeth that God the Father is only God and that Christ is not very God. That statement is found in William's book, The Radical Reformation. The Unitarianism produced a spate of so-called helpful literature from John Calvin, including, quote, a short instruction for to arm all good Christian people, as to say, against the heretics. And from Bullinger, an wholesome antidotus or counterpoison, written in 1545, and, I quote, a most necessary and fruitful dialogue between ye seditious libertin or rebel Anabaptist and the true obedient Christian, written in 1551. In those days of close religious control, Bishop John Jewell reported on Unitarians as follows. I quote, we found at the beginning of the reign of Elizabeth a large and inauspicious crop of Arians, Anabaptists, and other pests, which I know not how, but as mushrooms spring up in the night. There followed, under Elizabeth I's reign, the burning of two anti-Trinitarian Anabaptists, Henry Terwort and a 35-year-old goldsmith, and John Peters, aged 50, a father of nine children. Such merciful measures as strangling, suffocation, or gunpowder around the neck were omitted, and the two men died in unrelieved agony amidst the flames. A notable non-Trinitarian hero was Adam Pastor, one of the clearest exponents of the Unitarian view of the Godhead. He's rightly recognized as a father figure of biblical Unitarianism in Europe. He had been a Roman Catholic priest before joining the Anabaptists in 1533 in Münster, Germany. Pastor held against the view of Menno Simons of the Mennonites that Christ was human only. Though the bearer of God's word, Adam Pastor and a Frisian elder, Francis de Kuiper, stated at a conference in 1547 that Christ did not exist as the Son of God, 
previous to his coming into the world, and he was divine. After his birth, only in the sense that God dwelt in him, Adam Pastor was excommunicated even by some of his Anabaptist colleagues. But he gained a large following, calling themselves Adamites. Pastor insisted that no text showed that the Son existed before the Incarnation as a member of a tri-personal Godhead. Adam Pastor was described as earnest and critical, but mild and reverent in his debates. He was to influence the Polish Unitarians who later established a significant Unitarian academic center, which was a college at Rakow in Poland. Pastor Sosinus was born on December the 5th, 1539. His father and grandfather had been famous lawyers. His first theological essay was an explanation of the prologue of John's Gospel. He maintained that Jesus was divine by office rather than deity by nature. He wrote also on the mortality of man. As to say, the doctrine that at death man sleeps until the resurrection, and that the final punishment of the wicked is annihilation, not everlasting torture. It was his perception of the meaning of the Logos in John 1.1, 1, 1, which led him to the truth. The word, with lowercase w, or will of God, appeared in the form of flesh, a man. After his death and resurrection, Christ ascended to take his place at the right hand of God, sharing henceforth in God's power. In that sense only could Jesus be called God, as representing God, but always distinct from the one true God, as found in John 17 verse 3 and John 5 verse 44. God, said Socinus, assigned to Christ at the Ascension an adoptive deity as co-regent in the government of the world. Socinus considered Jesus to be entitled to divine adoration in opposition to the chief spokesman for Unitarianism in Transylvania, Francis David who did not think Jesus should be worshipped. There was really no need for serious dispute on that issue. It was this same Faustus Socinus, perhaps the most refined theologian of the Radical Reformation, who moved to Poland and helped to establish a college and printing press at Rakow, as well as farms and craft industries. This organization became an institution of international repute. Many of the faculty were scholars of unquestioned learning, some of them having been originally schooled in Hebrew and Greek, 
before becoming Anabaptists. The school drew 1,000 students from all over Europe, including 300 from families of European nobility. A Scotsman who visited the campus remarked, and I quote, for whereas elsewhere all was full of wars and tumult, there all was quiet. Men were calm and moderate in behavior, although they were spirited in debate and expert in language. End of quotation. The famous Rakovian Catechism makes this statement. I quote, our mediator before the throne of God is a man who was formerly promised to our fathers by the prophets and in these latter days was born of the seed of David and whom God the Father has made Lord and Christ, by whom he created the new world to the end that after the supreme God we should believe in him, adore and invoke him, hear his voice, imitate his example, and find in him rest to our souls. End of quotation from the Rakovian Catechism. In many countries, this confession was banned and its owners punished, often by death. The confession contains the doctrines of adult baptism, sleep of the dead, and the second coming. Many passages in John's Gospel are dealt with. Typical is the following. I quote, that a person may have had something and consequently may have had glory with the Father before the world was, without its being concluded, that he then actually existed. And this is evident from 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, where the apostle says of believers that grace was given to them before the world began. Besides, it is here stated in John 17, 5, that Christ prayed for this glory. Christ beseeches God to give him in actual possession with himself the glory which he had with the Father in his purposes and decrees before the world was. For it is often said that a person has something with anyone when it is promised or is destined for him. On this account, believers are frequently said by this evangelist to have eternal life. Hence it happens that Christ does not say absolutely that he had had that glory, but that he had had it with the Father, as if he had said that he now prayed to have actually conferred upon him that glory which had been laid up for him with the Father of old and before the creation of the world. Having concentrated largely on the Reformation period and the century following, in which we noted John Biddle, the schoolmaster, we should now turn our attention to the earliest period of church history. Holding as a fundamental conviction 
with the 15th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, that Jesus did not in any way propose to alter the strictly monotheistic faith of Israel, we are naturally keen to know how the Unitarianism of the New Testament could have been disturbed. Church history shows that the development of the so-called three-in-one notion was a process extending over centuries, culminating in the Nicene and Chalcedonian councils of 325 and 451 AD. It's very far from the truth to suggest that the doctrine of the Trinity gained universal acceptance from the beginning of the post-New Testament era. As Harvard theologian F. Auer says so well, and I quote, fourth century Trinitarianism did not reflect accurately early Christian teaching regarding the nature of God. It was, on the contrary, a deviation from this teaching. It developed against constant Unitarian opposition and was never wholly victorious. The dogma of the Trinity owes its existence to abstract speculation on the part of a small minority of scholars. That's a quotation from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. The crux of the whole Trinitarian problem lies in the Logos doctrine and its development. The so-called orthodox position was based upon the understanding of Logos as a second divine person in the eternal Godhead. The point is obscured for contemporary readers of the Bible by the simple fact that the grammatically masculine word Logos in Greek is referred to as, quote, he and him in John 1. I note that eight English translations from the Greek prior to the King James Version spoke of the Logos as it and not him. If then Logos were rendered, quote, God's utterance and referred to as it, quite different impression would be gained. Thus the non-personal Logos of the prologue of John, God's word with lowercase w, God's wisdom and God's mind becomes embodied in Jesus the man. I quote, the Logos of the prologue became Jesus. Jesus was the Logos become flesh but not the Logos as such. Jesus was the Logos in person. He was it in the flesh as a mortal human being. So says correctly a very helpful German theologian, Leonard Goppelt, in his Theology of the New Testament, written in 1982. In theology's most gripping detective story, we might entitle it, How the Logos Became a Person Before It Became a Person. We are astonished to find that Justin Martyr, writing in 150 AD, 
contends against a Jew, Trifo, with whom he held a lengthy debate, that Jesus, as Son of God, preexisted his birth quite literally and was, in fact, the angel of Yahweh, mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. Trifo, the Jew, protested against the inherent contradiction involved in saying that Jesus was a man, but not really a man. Thus he says to Justin, when you say that this Christ existed as God before the ages, then that he submitted to be born and become man, yet that he is not man of man, this appears to me to be not merely paradoxical, but also foolish. That's from the work Dialogue with Trifo. The astonishing fact is that had the Jewish argument prevailed against the philosopher Justin Martyr, supposedly representing Christianity, a Trinitarian so-called problem might never have arisen. Once the idea is floated that Jesus was, so to speak, around before his birth, then he must be, so to speak, found in the Old Testament. Without a shred of biblical proof, the angel of Yahweh was said to be the pre-existent Jesus, and many evangelicals, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses, have ever since accepted this theory. It's wise to consult the New Testament on this point. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen summarizes the history of Israel and makes specific mention of an angel of the Lord in Acts chapter 7, verses 30 and 38. An angel who represents the Lord God, Exodus 23, verses 20 to 21. What an opportunity for Stephen to say that the angel was Jesus pre-existing. But that equation he never, ever makes. And the writer to the book of Hebrews took two chapters to explain that Jesus was superior to all angels. He never has been and never will be an angel. Furthermore, God did not speak through a son, a begotten son, that is, until New Testament times. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. With Justin Martyr, the Logos as a second divine person became entrenched. In the ensuing centuries, isolated individuals arose to challenge orthodoxy. Notable are the so-called dynamic monarchians. The first of these, Theodotus of Byzantium, was a man of learning. He came to Rome in 190 AD and taught that Jesus was fully a man, born of the Virgin, upon whom the Spirit came at his birth. Theodotus held that Jesus became to a greater degree divine at his resurrection. Theodotus was promptly excommunicated by Bishop Victor of Rome. 
He was followed in his thinking by another Theodotus and by Asclepiodotus and also by one whose name was Artemon. But this dynamic monarchianism was dying in the West. In the East, Paul of Samosata was the chief exponent of a non-preexistent Jesus. Paul was Bishop of Antioch from around 260 to 272. He considered the Logos to be an impersonal attribute of the Father, not a pre-existing Son. Jesus is a uniquely inspired man. I quote, Paul's doctrine is akin to the primitive Jewish Christian idea of the person of Christ. So say church historians, notably Henry Chadwick in his book, The Early Church. Three councils considered Paul of Samosata's view and the third excommunicated him. He kept his place until driven out by the Emperor Aurelian of Bishop Arius, father of Arianism, as distinct from Socinianism, much more is known. He contended that Jesus was pre-existent, but created. His famous line is, there was a time when he was not. This view was thought to be unsatisfactory since it made Jesus neither God nor man. But could not exactly the same be said of the so-called orthodox view, which has prevailed to this day? A leading contemporary New Testament scholar, John Knox, seems to think so. I quote, we can have the humanity without the pre-existence, and we can have the pre-existence without the humanity. There's absolutely no way of having both. That's from the book, The Humanity and Divinity of Christ, published in 1967. Before leaving the early period, we should mention as representative of a Socinian school of Christology, Bishop Photinus, who died in 376, whom the Catholic Encyclopedia labels, quote, heretic. Photinian became a term to describe anyone who held Christ to be a man who did not exist until his birth at Nazareth. Photinus's writings are lost, but he's known to us mostly through the 27 anathemas of the council in 351 AD, which condemned him. Much later in the 600s, our Christology was perhaps represented by the Paulicians, possibly named after Paul of Samosata, whose leader Constantine was executed for his heretical views of the Trinity. Of significance for the proponents of unitary monotheism in our time was the publishing in 1977 of the myth of God incarnate. 
Though we would not subscribe to the general theological position of those scholars, that's to say in eschatology particularly, we must welcome their refreshing analysis of the doctrine of God. They seldom use the terms Trinitarian or non-Trinitarian, but they do question whether the incarnation with a capital I and in the traditional sense can be found in the Bible. That is just the question asked by the pioneers of return to the unitary monotheism of the Shema. It is encouraging to hear scholars say that the Trinitarian dogma, and I quote, was determined neither by scripture nor by experience, but by the Arian controversy on the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a quotation from J.A.T. Robinson, The Human Face of God, written in 1973. It is interesting to find a schoolmate of mine, at one time a well-known television theologian and Cambridge professor, writing, and I quote, God's Son is not a second co-equal person alongside God the Father, but simply man filled with God, united with God. That's a quotation from Don Cupid in his book, The Debate About Christ. The current debate in theological circles worldwide concerns eschatology and Christology. Our desire is to lead the way back to the true Jesus and to the gospel about the kingdom. John A.T. Robinson, one of Britain's best-known New Testament scholars, adopted a view of Jesus which reclaims a simple Unitarianism. When I told him that I was teaching in a Bible college in the USA, his immediate reaction was, and I quote, you won't last more than a few days there. A non-Trinitarian Jesus will be quite unacceptable in an American Bible college. But his own so-called heretical views were orthodox in more circles than he recognized and even in one American Bible college. That's to say Atlanta Bible College, formerly in Oregon, Illinois, as Oregon Bible College since 1939. We might present the debate about Christology dramatically as below. Some so-called modern theologians seem to say how can we present Jesus to the people today? No one will believe in a pre-existent being arriving on earth at his birth. J.A.T. Robinson replies, but wait, did anyone in the New Testament believe that anyway? No, but the early church fathers, influenced by Gnosticism, misunderstood the book of John, neglected the evidence of the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament, relied on a handful of difficult Pauline verses, and presented a Jesus who was literally pre-existent, 
but this is not the Jesus of the Bible. So would have said J.A.T. Robinson. Biblical Unitarians then replied, but didn't we tell you so? For 2000 years, you wouldn't listen and you burned us to death for questioning your official dogma. Nevertheless, our task is to present to the world the true Jesus, who was never a second member of an eternal trinity. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 warned that Satan's most diabolical trick would be to replace the real Jesus with a counterfeit Jesus. And John warned in 1 John 4 verse 2 and 2 John 7 that the confession of a Jesus who is not the fully human historical Messiah signals the spirit of Antichrist. To this orthodoxy, disbelievingly, might reply, no one is going to tell me the church could have been wrong for nearly 2,000 years on a basic doctrine. To which biblical Unitarians, answering the so-called modern theologians, might say, the arrival of Jesus as a divine being on earth will occur at the second coming. Jesus is certainly, so to speak, pre-existent to that future event because he lives after being resurrected. Ultimately, the confusion of Jesus with the Creator seems to come perilously close to idolatry. And we may well wonder if the living Bible, so-called as a paraphrase, is not encouraging just that in its extravagantly inaccurate paraphrase of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 and verse 10. I quote from the Living Bible, Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. He created everything that is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. But although he made the world, the world didn't recognize him when he came. Meanwhile, Walter Martin says, Many individuals and all cults steadfastly deny the equality of Jesus Christ with God the Father and hence the triune deity. However, the testimony of the scriptures stands sure and the above mentioned references, that's to say his so-called proof texts, they alone put to silence forever this blasphemous heresy which in the power of Satan himself deceives many with its, quote, deceitful handling of the word of God. That's from Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, written in 2003. Another sketch of Unitarian history. The New Schaff Herzog's encyclopedia's article on the history of objectors to the Trinity records the cruel treatment they received from the so-called Christian lands in which they lived. When Orthodox Trinitarian Christology was strongly enforced following the church councils, 
and the backing of imperial power under Empress Theodosius, other views of God and Jesus subsided. A non-Trinitarian view of the Son of God survived amongst a group called the Paulicians in Armenia. Early British Christianity shows some evidence of unorthodox Christology, and it was widespread in Spain and found a leader in Felix of Urgel of the Frankish Church in 799 AD. In Europe, Poland was the home of non-Trinitarians. When theologians arrived there from Italy, notably George Blandrata, after 1575, leadership was in the hands of Faustus Socinus, hence the term Socinianism. A Unitarian college was founded at Rakow in Poland and this institution produced a confession of faith describing their non-Trinitarian views. This was the Rakovian Confession of 1605. There was actually a Unitarian prince, John Sigismund II of Transylvania. The Unitarian movement was decisively suppressed by Roman Catholic Jesuits with a decree in 1658 for the expulsion of Socinians from the realm. These believers found their way to Germany, Holland, and Transylvania. In Hungary, Unitarians found a strong leader in Francis David, who became bishop of the Unitarian churches. But in 1579, the Roman Catholic Viceroy put David under surveillance of the magistrates. He was then condemned to imprisonment for life as an innovator and blasphemer. David died in a dungeon in 1579, and the event established him as a Unitarian martyr. Though Unitarians continued to have legal existence they suffered hardship. Under Austrian rule, their publications were forbidden and their churches confiscated. However, a statute of 1791 relieved the pressure on these dissenters. That's from an article on Unitarians in the New Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. Unitarians in Britain. Some of the English martyrs of the 16th century suffered for so-called Arian views. I note that the term Arian was sometimes used to describe all forms of non-Trinitarian belief, both the strict Arian view of Arius and the Neo-Arians of the 4th century, as well as the so-called Socinians from the 16th century and a few from earlier centuries. The first noteworthy expression of the spirit and method of Unitarianism was the religion of Protestants, a safe way to salvation, published in 1638 by William Chillingworth 
and the first conspicuous application of this method with express Unitarian results was made by John Biddle, who under the Commonwealth gathered a society in London and published his views. In 1662, he was imprisoned for the third time and soon died of prison disease. His writings were collected and published by his disciple, Thomas Furman, in 1691, entitled The Faith of One God. Although Unitarianism was excluded from the operation of the Toleration Act of 1689, while its advocates were threatened by the Act of 1698 with loss of civil rights and imprisonment, Socinian and Arian views of the person of Christ found increasing favor in the course of the 18th century, both in the Church of England and among dissenters. Noted instances of this tendency are Samuel Clarke, Nathaniel Lardner, Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, and Philip Doddridge. The first chapel with the Unitarian name was founded in Essex Street, London in 1778 by Theophilus Lindsay, who, on the refusal of Parliament in 1772 to receive a petition for the relaxation of subscription to the 39 Articles, had resigned his living in Catterick, Yorkshire. In his London chapel, he used Clark's revision of the English liturgy. Lindsay was aided by the sympathy of Presbyterians who had made their chapels built since 1688, free from dogmatic restrictions and seeking conformity with the Bible alone, and they had relinquished Calvinistic views and the doctrine of the Trinity. The decisive influence in this change was exercised by the eminent scientist, publicist, and theologian Joseph Priestley. As an avowed Socinian, Priestley ministered to congregations in Leeds in the UK from 1768 to 1780, also in Birmingham from 1780 to 1791. He died in Pennsylvania in 1804. The successor of Priestley in Birmingham and of Lindsay in London, 1795, was Thomas Belsham, who sought to make, quote, the simple and proper humanity of Christ, the acknowledged Unitarian view. Another notable leader was Lant Carpenter, preacher in Bristol in the UK. In 1813, the legal disabilities of Unitarians were removed, and in 1825, the British and Foreign Unitarian Association was formed by a union of Presbyterian and Baptist churches to which were later joined small Methodist groups 
like the so-called Christian Brethren. By the Dissenters' Chapels Act of 1844, the possession of ancient endowments and chapels were secured. The National Conference, a purely deliberative body, was founded in 1881. In 1911, there were 378 ministers and 374 churches, of which 295 are in England, as to say, as of 1912. Theological instruction is given in Manchester College, Oxford, and the Home Missionary College at Manchester. The Hibbert Fund, instituted by Robert Hibbert, a Jamaica planter who died in 1849, has promoted scholarship and established relations with the theological liberalism of the continent. To this foundation are due the famous Hibbert Lectures and the Hibbert Journal since October of 1902. Welsh Unitarianism began with the Arminian Revolt from Calvinism of Jenkin Jones in Lwyn Redawan in 1726. His successors adopted Arian views. There are 34 churches in South Wales and a college at Carmarthen. Irish Unitarianism began in 1726 when the Presbytery of Antrim separated from the General Synod in order to establish worship without subscription to creed. In 1830, the Remonstrant Synod of Ulster was formed on similar principles, and in 1835, an association of Irish non-subscribing Presbyterians united these free churches. There are 38 churches, chiefly in the counties of Antrim and Down. In Scotland, there are seven churches, the oldest in Edinburgh, dating from 1776. Unitarianism in America. The first public confession of Unitarianism began in 1785 with James Freeman of King's Chapel, the oldest Episcopal church in Boston. All reference to the deity of Christ and the Trinity was omitted from the Book of Common Prayer. In the mid-18th century, Unitarianism flourished in the congregational churches of eastern Massachusetts. Non-Trinitarian views prevailed at Harvard University, with the eloquent preaching of Joseph Buckminster and William Ellery Channing, who produced two journals, the Monthly Anthology of 1803, and the Christian Disciple of 1813. Channing publicly challenged his opponents in a sermon on, quote, Unitarian Christianity in 1819 and his so-called moral argument against Calvinism in 1820. 
The American Unitarian Association was formed in 1825. The first convention of churches met in New York in 1865. A convention in 1894 declared, and I quote, these churches accept the religion of Jesus, holding, in accordance with his teaching, that practical religion is summed up in love to God and love to man. This statement would appear inoffensive, but the God in question was not the Trinity, but the one God of Jesus' own creed. Unitarianism has, of course, continued since the early 20th century when the Schafherzog article was penned. In general, Unitarians have become less, quote, biblical, meaning that they lost a grip on central biblical teachings such as the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the second coming. The loss of these central truths is hardly likely to make Unitarianism attractive to evangelicals, and the fault lies in this respect with the Unitarianism which has lost its biblical basis other than in its rejection of creeds which superseded the creed of Jesus himself.